Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas Studios. I hate these guys. I don't know why you don't, and I'll be in the car. This is the Press Box. Makeup stuff. Tyler Bischoff. That player is known as the Scrabble Jackass and is then handed the box top for any further rule clarifications. Adam Candy. I can't hate him. He is so transparent in his self-interest that I kind of respect him. Would I buy a car from him? On ESPN Las Vegas. Ed Grady is still in New Orleans for the national championship game tonight. We'll catch up with him in a few minutes, though. Adam Candy is in today. Jared told us before the show that his headphones don't work, so I'm looking forward to this being an even bigger disaster than it normally is. The First Bite. We currently do not have a sponsor for the first bite, so it is brought to you by the Unnecessary Roughness Podcast over on Raider Nation Radio. Does anyone have anything nice to say about Coach K? Adam? I'm assuming that means you don't have anything nice to say since you bounced it to me immediately. I don't have anything nice to say. I don't really have too much mean to say either. I don't I don't have strong feelings about Mike Krzyzewski like a lot of people do. Okay, so I found something. I needed to go find something nice to say uh, about Mike Krzyzewski. And I did research because he's a fellow human and deserves that much. And I found Mike Krzyzewski's biography in the West Point yearbook. Oh, this uh, is exciting. This is, this is a deep dive. Okay. Krzyzewski pronounced Krizolonsky. It actually says that. <laughs> or some other variation has made a name for himself among the rest of the cream. Whether on the basketball court or in the phone booth, Mick has shown his spirit and endurance. His humble manner and dynamic personality has made him the leader of the, I can't pronounce this, a backwards tribe, but all around us. In all seriousness, we are confident that Mike's success in the future will rank with such notables as Durante, De Bergerac, and Pinocchio. Pinocchio. So, yeah, that's yeah, that's what passed for humor. That's what passed for humor in those days. But I figured I will thank Mike Krzyzewski for going to West Point and serving the U.S. and serving the U.S. at West Point, uh, not only as a player, but then as a coach and as a cadet. And beyond that, as someone who lived in Vegas in 1990 when the undefeated UNLV team lost to Duke, guess what? I would just rather be a fan. I don't want to find any more nice to say about him. I want to continue... <laughs> To dislike him as much as the rest of this city does for screwing up the undefeated season. So I'm just going to keep it right there. That's the beautiful part about being a fan. I don't have to have something nice to say about him. Can you read for me again the the um, pronunciation from his biography at West Point? Uh, I'm going to sound it out the same way it is in here. And obviously this is meant to be humor. But Chris Ilonski. Mike Krizol, or if we're going to use the other word for his first name, Mick Krizolonski. Mick. <laughs> I do wonder at what point in his life was he confident enough to correct every single person that mispronounced his last name? Like, did that oh. come for him when he was like 12? Or did that come much later in life? Well, we can guarantee that you know the confidence of being a West Point cadet had to at least made a college, right? And then he was also the head coach at Army by 28. So we can confidently say by the age of 28, there wasn't a person in the world calling him Grzelonski. Because <laughs> like, 
my high school basketball coach mispronounced my last name and I never corrected him. Not once did I have the guts to say that's not how you say it. So I'm curious when that came because his name is significantly worse than mine. So um, how, how did you pronounce it? Just Biscoff. Just a hard C in the middle of the name. So the the same as uh, Jackson Francois. Yes. Yes. Basically. Okay. Yeah. So now here's what I found fascinating. Uh, I remember a media appearance with Tyler where they kept calling you Biscoff. Yeah, it happens. The I probably wouldn't do it. I hear media yeah. thing and I kept screaming. It's Bischoff. It's Bischoff. What's, uh, what was the oh Gramelia? Um, the Mountain West once pronounced Mike Grimaldo's last name as Gramelia. That was that was a fun one too. Um, what I found fascinating after Duke lost the game, and maybe it's just who I follow on Twitter. Maybe I don't follow the right people, but every single tweet about Mike Shashesky was dunking on Mike Shashesky, was dancing on the grave of Mike Shashesky. Everybody. Everybody that I saw on Twitter, except for the Nike account, was pumped that Duke lost, was ecstatic that Mike Krzyzewski's career was over. But the contrast between that and the coverage on TBS and then eventually on ESPN of Mike Krzyzewski's career being over, it was like two different realities. Every single thing on TBS or ESPN was about how much he meant for the game, how great he was, how sad it was. Like Kenny Smith up there, a North Carolina graduate, like multiple times was like, we, we have to thank him for what he did for North Carolina. He didn't even coach North Carolina. It was unbelievable the contrast between what we saw on TV and the way actual people were responding by dancing on his grave. It's like, I, I don't know that I've ever seen that big of a disconnect from media coverage versus actual college basketball fan response mm. to some sort of event. The one I don't know how to take it because when you read some things that people like Jay Billis and former players say about him, they love Mike Krzyzewski. They make it sound like playing for Mike Krzyzewski was a privilege. And for the rest of us, it was everything but a privilege to have to listen to him. And to have to watch him operate. And maybe it's a Bill Belichick thing, right? Maybe there's something about the public persona that is so different than what you get out of a close relationship that you get this sort of disconnect. But what you get from watching him, what you get from seeing him on TV, either with his team or in press conferences, in general, you just you see something that looks sullen. You see something that looks angry. And you hear a guy in press conferences who dunks on student reporters so it's really hard to have a warm and fuzzy feeling what was okay what's actually fascinating and i think uh, this is a big reason why people don't like mike krzyzewski after the game he went and found armando baycott who uh, hurt his ankle late in that game but came back in and mike krzyzewski went up to him and he was he told him i hope you're okay and told him you are you were my vote for ACC player of the year, right? Which is, you know, opposing coach, you ended his season, he finds you after the game, he's worried about your well-being. He says, "Hey, I think you're a great player. I think you were the best in our country." That's normally like unbelievable moment, right? Like we love that stuff. For whatever reason it is about Mike Shashevsky's demeanor, it did not seem sincere at all. Like not for one bit did it seem sincere. And I think that's where it comes off as where everything Mike Krzyzewski does, whether anything nice that he does or anything that would be portrayed as nice, the way his demeanor is just never makes it seem sincere. Well, I think the, to add to that, 
once we've seen a certain side of a guy's personality, it's really difficult then to go back. You know, once we've seen Mike Shashevsky, you know, being as condescending in certain situations as he has been, then how do you see him being nice and think that's real? You, you look at it and you say to yourself, no, I've, you know what? I've seen you when the cameras are off in theory, right? And obviously the cameras are on, so why we know about it. But the idea being, we've seen you in settings that were lower stakes than that in a different form. All right. Now the actual game itself, I am, I'm truly surprised, amazed even, that that game lived up to the hype or exceeded the hype. I mean, that was a phenomenal college basketball game. They came down to the final minute. There were 18 lead changes. We had multiple lead changes in the final two minutes. It had just enough NBA skill and just enough like college basketball produces some bad, wacky basketball that made it unbelievably entertaining for a game that had as high a stakes as any Final Four game has ever had. So... I fear that we built it up too much, right? Like, I absolutely was thinking to myself, all right, what if we get the game before it, right? Kansas-Villanova was a dog of a game. (laughs) And I can't blame Villanova. You know, Villanova's without its second-leading score, so it happens. So we build up Duke-Carolina, again, like you and I talked about last week, because of the rivalry. Because this rivalry has produced so many games that rank up in the pantheon, And then they come out there, and I think it's the part that you just said about the skill level, right? What have we heard all tournament long? Oh, it's not the NBA. These guys don't play the same kind of game. No, these guys played that game. This was not a bunch of bricks and a bunch of turnovers. This was you are watching multiple future NBA players go at it. And I know I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit here, but you see the athleticism of a Caleb Love you don't feel like you lost anything watching college basketball versus the pros. Yeah, and like Caleb Love is, I don't even know, is he projected to be a draft pick this year? I don't, I'm not even sure if he is. Caleb Love is not the most NBA-ready player in that game. Caleb Love is not who anybody would jump out and pick. Is that That's the best player that's in that game. And yet Caleb Love was awesome in the second half of that game. And obviously he makes the big three towards the end to give him a four-point lead in the final 30 seconds. But like, that's the kind of shot making that makes basketball enjoyable when you have somebody just pull up from three and drain, you know, a go ahead three, or in this case, it was somewhat of a dagger three to extend the lead to two possessions. Like, that's what we love. And we kind of got that for 40 minutes. I mean, again, there were enough like North Carolina turnovers that led to Duke fast break dunks, and there were enough Duke missed layups that it was still a college basketball game, but there was enough high in play. And the other part of this, Two teams that wanted to play fast. I think that's one of the bigger keys in college basketball when we get fun games. It's two teams that wanted to play fast. Duke, the the amount it had to happen three or four times in that game. The amount of times that North Carolina made a shot, hell, it happened on the Caleb Love three in the final 30 seconds. The amount of times that North Carolina made a shot and Duke had a layup or a shot at the rim within four seconds was unreal last night because they got it out and they and that it goes a long way towards a game being entertaining when you have teams that A, want to play fun, B, you have the talent level, and C, it's close. Obviously, close game sort of trumps everything else. So that made it fun. The last thing on this game, is there has there ever been, will there ever be a bigger trump card in a rivalry matchup than North Carolina ended Mike Krzyzewski's career 
in the final four after beating him in his last ever home game? Like, is anything ever going to come close to that? After also giving him his very first loss of his career, right? <laughs> like, Isn't that awesome? It's like, it's unreal. such symmetry. It's absolutely beautiful. Like, I, like, should they even play again? Like, they should tell the ACC they don't want to play them ever again. Because it's not, it, it doesn't get better than Are that. Are you kidding? They, they tell them they don't want to play again. Who's going to come in there and keep Duke at the level that Krzyzewski's had it? I'm looking forward to, if I'm North Carolina, I'm looking forward to the reverse of the Matt Doherty years, right? Like, I'm looking forward to a time when the other school doesn't have a legendary coach and we can smack him around for a while. Look, there it is. Something nice about Mike Krzyzewski. Hey, you tricked me. You did it. You did it. Coming up next, the Golden Knights. Man, every game, they keep saving their season. This is incredible. It's a three-on-one. Marcheseau so with Carlson and Theodore. Marcheseau so to the middle. Theodore scores! Vegas in overtime. Shea Theodore wins it for Vegas. An appropriate hero in Vancouver. The Knights defeat the Canucks 3-2. Three goals in three games for Shea Theodore. He wins it for the Knights. They've won five in a row. It's the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas featuring Adam Candy. How many times do you think the season's going to be saved by an overtime or a late goal in the third period? Because it's happening a lot recently. How many games are left? <laughs> it's going to have to be saved over and over again uh, unless you keep getting help like you did last night from Seattle. So 11 more times this year the season might be saved uh, for the Golden Knights. Uh, Shea Theodore, as you heard there, scored in overtime. That prevented the Golden Knights from blowing a 2 nothing lead, though I guess they kind of would have gotten a loser point out of their moral victory point uh, had they lost in overtime there. But it boosted the Golden Knights' playoff odds up to roughly 50%, according to Money Puck. Had they lost that game in regulation, it would have been down around 40%. And right now, your standings, the Edmonton Oilers have the third spot in the Pacific with 85 points. The Golden Knights have 82 points. The Golden Knights have played one more game. They're also four points behind uh, the Kings and have played the same amount of games there. The Golden Knights have more points than Dallas, but the Dallas Stars, even though losing last night, have three in hand and only a point behind Vegas. It's the final wild card spot. So still, the Golden Knights by point percentage are not in the playoffs at the moment, but a 50% chance according to Money Puck, who apparently thinks they're a little bit better than Dallas or will be a little bit better than Dallas to end the season. Um, but in goal, Robin Leonard started his first game since March 8th. Allowed uh, two goals last night. Vancouver's expected goals was about two and a half. But it meant Logan Thompson got benched, who had won four starts in a row, including his last two games. He had allowed just two goals on 50 shots. Both were against the Seattle Kraken, who maybe do, you, do we need to give them a little bit more credit since they beat Dallas last night, Adam? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> so the question uh, in net. Is Robin Leonard the unquestioned number one? Or maybe ask it this way, will Logan Thompson start another game this season? Yes, I think there's no question Logan Thompson will start another game. Robin Leonard was good last night. And if you even be fairer to Robin Leonard than you were, Robin Leonard really allowed one goal last night. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the second goal. <laughs> Goodness. 
uh, I mean, a, a draw that goes back and gets tipped between his legs. I mean, Wait, that's can, something I, that, can I do my little tangent for a second oh, here? Um, hockey needs own goals. I don't know why this sport doesn't have own goals. This sport needs to start recognizing own goals. And there has not been a better example of it than that goal last night. No Canuck touched the puck. William Carlson won a faceoff. Alec Martinez decided at the last minute to throw his stick and tip it so that it went between Robin Leonard's legs when Robin Leonard was set up to play it with his stick and his glove away from his body. And for whatever reason, Alec Martinez decided, no, no, I need to deflect this and managed to send it through his five hole. No Canuck touched the puck, but I think it was Bo Horvat got credit for a goal last night. How are we doing that? How's Bo Horvat getting credit for that goal? Because he lost a faceoff? No. Give us own goals. That should be Alec Martinez's own goal in the in the official stats. That's what I want to see from here on out in hockey. And we need it. There's enough stupid goals in this sport that we credit to the guy who did absolutely nothing on offense. We need to start shaming guys who put it behind their own goalie's legs. Well, if there's one thing I've always said about hockey, Tyler, is that it needs to be more like soccer. It does. Uh, now, I think that the uh, stat that I want to yell about is that Empty net goals get counted in regular goals. Why should they get counted when there's no goalie? There's no one there to stop it. We're like, oh, Jonathan Marcheseau now has 28 goals on the year. No, Jonathan Marcheseau basically played Scoro between periods. And he stood there at center ice with nobody in front of him, no goal. And they're like, if you can put it in the net, you win a free sub sandwich. Why does that get counted for things like us coding stats and these guys going and getting contracts at the end of the year. It doesn't make sense. What? Okay. How, how should it be counted? Cause I mean, it's obviously still category. a goal, a separate okay. category. Okay. Like it, it, you should absolutely, I mean the same way we have regulation wins and overtime wins. Why would you not have a separate category for empty net goals? Because like, and I'm, I'm going to use another soccer reference for you here. Um, in, in soccer, if you score from a penalty, it counts as a regular goal. But for the most part, any sort of like statistical analysis of individual players, they almost always have a non-penalty goal, a non-penalty uh, goal stat, right? To show, hey, yeah, this guy, he's got 15, but four of them have been from the penalty spot, which we don't give him a ton of credit for because he might not have even earned that penalty. So you're right. We should have a way of gauging, yes, this guy has scored X amount of goals, but uh, 75% are non empty net goals. I think you're right. William Carlson's the one who's really racking up the empty net goals, though. He's the one who's boosted his numbers with the empty net goals. Well, Marshall's had two in the last three games, so that's part of why after Jonathan Marshall's uh, name. Seal the game up. It's a big deal when you score. Yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and take that away. I mean, look, the Golden Knights are going to continue to save their season, Tyler, to answer your first question every single time that they get a win because you have a team behind them in Dallas that has three games in hand, period. And I think what really stands out to me is that this team has gotten better defensively by adding back in Alec Martinez, Braden McNabb. That goes as far to me as a, anything about who's in goal because the Golden Knights have been built for a long time on two things. One, they block a lot of shots and they make life very difficult for you in the offensive in your offensive zone to try to get the puck through to the goaltender. And the other thing is they've generally relied on a goaltender to bail them out when they have a defenseman jump up and try to create offense. Well, here's the thing. They haven't been playing that way. They've actually been playing more of a defensive shell kind of game. They can't score. 
right? They scored two goals early in that game and then looked helpless for the second and third period. I believe even Shane Knighty on the broadcast called it out with about two minutes left in the third period, said yeah, they have 11 shots in the second and third period. So how differently would we be looking at this game if they give up two in the third and then the breakaway basically right off the jump in overtime leads to a goal for Vancouver would be saying, oh my God, the, the Golden Knights are done. They can't score. So they're going to have to keep playing a defensive game. Yeah, and so there's two things that are at play there. One is that they've gotten McNabb and Alec Martinez back, and they are mostly healthy on that blue line. Obviously, those guys aren't 100%, but for the most part, those are at least the names and the bodies you would have on the ice. The other part of it I think that's important is it's Seattle and Vancouver. Like the last two games is, have been teams that you would not expect to put put up a great offensive night against the Golden Knights, but hey, it, the Golden Knights, part of the reason they're in this situation is because they lost to a bunch of bad teams. I mean, they went on the road and lost to, what was it, four straight teams that were not in a playoff spot. So I guess they get a little bit of credit because, again, we're talking about can they simply sneak their way into the playoffs at this point, and beating bad teams is often the way you kind of sneak your way into the playoffs. So it probably is the number one reason. If they make the playoffs, it's probably going to be the number one reason is they got Martinez and McNabb back and – they were more helpful than when they poked it between Robin Leonard's legs last night for the rest of the season. That's probably the reason they make the playoffs is because those two guys are back and they play enough games where they only need to score twice. They only need to score three times to win a game as opposed to needing to score four or five like we've seen in the past. So as long as Alec Martinez isn't putting it through Robin Leonard's legs, I think they're going to have a, a legitimate shot here to make the playoffs, even if I still think it's unlikely given the amount of games in hand Dallas has. The own goal stands out so much last night because when you're a team that can't score, you put yourself in a situation for that to be what decides not only potentially the game, but the rest of your season. <laughs> oh, they, well, what would have been, actually, you say if Bo, if Bo Horvat had scored right off the bat in overtime, um, what if they had given up the goal in the final second of regulation? I mean, yeah, they, that they, was dangerous, too. They just forgot. I think it was a Tyler Myers. They just forgot about the final two seconds of the game. And Vancouver had a shot from the slot with Robin Leonard moving out of position because the puck was behind the net and comes to the front of the net and just missed the net, completely missed it. Like the Golden Knights, like had they lost in overtime, there would have been some level of, well, they got a point. That's not going to be good enough the rest of the way, but at least it's something. If they had lost on the final shot of regulation to blow a 2 nothing lead, then we would have been here telling you they're done. The season's over poetic way for their season to come to an end coming up next ed graney joins the show from new orleans i thought both teams played played their hearts out it's an emotional win and it's an emotional loss and that's the way a game like this should be we are back to the press box with graney and bischoff featuring adam candy joining us now from new orleans at the final four is ed graney good morning ed how are you tell us what's happening Oh, it's a good good day. All right, I've got an important question for you because you you might be part of the problem here. I was surprised, and I know you probably didn't see this because you were you know working, not watching TV. But I was surprised at the contrast between TBS and then ESPN and their coverage of Mike Shashevsky's career ending, where everything was about how great he was, what he meant to the game, how important he was. All this was was a nice, hey, Coach K, big part of the game, and his career is over. Whereas every single tweet I saw, every college basketball fan that I saw 
was essentially dancing on his grave. The contrast between media coverage and fan response, I don't know if I've ever seen it that different as it was after Coach K lost. So you also you saw all the tweets from Vegas people. <laughs> yes, and that's what I said. Maybe I just follow the wrong people. <laughs> I've seen all the Vegas um, I guess I'm not surprised. I mean, I haven't seen I haven't seen much media coverage from TV over the years that have anything other than praise for him, um, that, which has a lot to do. You know, it has a lot to do with people here as well covering it. Um, so I'm not surprised that I didn't see the coverage on TV, like you said. But um, you know, I, I get the whole Vegas theme about him because you know, beat UNLV and the arrogance and the smugness that people think he had over the years. And you know, I, I don't think you know talked about one and done against them and he started taking one and done. I think there's been some instances with players that they don't think the NCAA followed up on with, you know, like they did other schools in terms of potential violations. So I get all the tweets about it, but um, not surprised on the TV side of things at all. I mean, look, a lot of Duke guys still do TV. Not going to go against them, um, but not surprised at all that there was kind of the difference between fans who don't like him and then TV who kind of fawn over him. Ed, on the other side of this with Kansas, uh, I'm not sure how good Kansas is. They look good, but the quality of the competition certainly didn't look right with Villanova and the the injured roster that they brought out there in the national semifinal. How good is this Kansas team? I got to be honest. I think they're really good, and I was talking to them earlier this morning, um, and maybe you guys agree. We might have talked about this. Like, I've never seen – a one seed talked about less. And I think that's helped them. I think they went through the draw and everything was like Shashevsky, Shashevsky, Shashevsky in like every region and talking about him. And that's why I think Carolina kids will see tonight if they can kind of bounce back, which I thought was an incredible game and an incredible win because all they were asked about was Duke and Shashevsky. Where Kansas is a one seed, like especially the first three or four rounds, like I never even heard from them other than you just watch their, you know, maybe watch some of their games, you saw the score and you're like, oh, Kansas won and they keep going on. I don't know if that'll help them tonight, but I think they've been able to kind of skate through this thing and not feel the pressure of, you know, usually you get with number ones. Um, but I, I think they're pretty good. Like, I think um, uh, Abaji's good. I think McCormick's good. Uh, we'll see tonight. The, I think the key is, you know, Baycott, um, because if his ankle's not good, then they could really, really have a hard time Carolina inside. So we'll see. But it's a good question because. I don't think many people paid attention to them. So I don't know if many people, you know, really kind of know how good they really are because everything was about Krzyzewski to this point. Uh, so far, the best team that Kansas has played in the NCAA tournament by Ken Pomerank was Villanova, who's 10, mm-hmm. but they didn't mm-hmm. have their second best player. So in reality, the, they haven't really played a top 10 team in North Carolina. Right. Guess what? Not top 10 in Ken Palm either. So Kansas would have, I, I wonder if somebody's already done this, maybe the easiest path to a national championship ever. Maybe if they win it. Um, I know our, uh, our, friend slash colleague Adam Hill said that in the beginning of the turn before the before the tournament even started he looked at the bracket and said exactly what you just said Tyler like if they win it it might be the easiest path they've ever had but I'll tell you what the guy's won one title and gets a lot of grief about it deservedly so for some of the teams he's had so I don't think he'll care I don't think Bill Self will care if they have the easiest you know easiest road to get a winning title if, if he wins it and if he doesn't win it I think deservedly so. He'll he'll be given a hard time still. I mean, he has one title, and 
And I give him credit. He talked about that yesterday. He said one isn't enough. And when you coach at the school, we haven't done enough. We haven't done the job enough. But if he he loses again with the kind of path they had, it might be one of the worst ones, given the, you know the team he has and like who he who he's played so far. Is Bill Self the Aaron Rodgers of college basketball coaching? He might be. I mean, that's a good that's a good comparison. I Check mean, his toe. Title Check, does he have COVID toe? Check his toe, Ed. We need you to figure out if he has well, COVID toe or not. <laughs> well, he st- he limps a little, but that might be the age. <laughs> um, he does kind of limp around a little. Yeah, I mean. 16 conference titles, nine tournament titles in terms of the Big 12 and one national title. I mean, four Final Fours, that's a good comparison. I mean, he's he's been there, you know, this is his fourth time now, and he's won one. So we'll see tonight. But like I said, yesterday he didn't he didn't run from that. I gave him a little credit for that. He was asked, it was like the second question asked of him, and then he got asked it again later on. And both times he said they haven't done enough and he needs to win more. But I think when you have a, you know, a lifetime contract, um, you feel pretty good about that. Even if you lose tonight, you're going to be fine. I think the ironic thing is, you know, you might have a team that wins it all tonight and three years into an investigation, we still don't have any kind of, you know, <laughs> determination on that. Cause they were, you know, they were uh, four or five, you know, level one um, infractions, you know, um, institutional control involved in the FBI investigation and nothing's come of it so far. So it would be pretty ironic if they're the ones holding the trophy tonight. On the North Carolina side, and I think Hubert Davis has one of the toughest coaching jobs in recent memory to have to do tonight because the national semifinal was bigger than just about any championship game could be for that university. You face Duke, you knock Krzyzewski out. It's your rival on the biggest stage. It's been hyped up as the game of the century. Oh, by the way, come back tonight and win the national championship against Kansas. Exactly. That's why I think Kansas is going to win. And I know it's been 48 hours. If it is 24, it'd be, I don't know if they would have had any chance because those kids were done nothing but asked about Duke and Krzyzewski and Duke and, Sh- and that rivalry and what they did in Cameron and all those things. And now to have to come back and get yourself back up. I mean, Davis said, if you can't get up for a national championship, you shouldn't be playing, which is kind of a cliche people say. But internally, I think you're exactly right. That's why I picked Kansas to win. I think that's a hard – and Baycott's ankle also. I mean, he said he's fine yesterday, but he came back in. But I think that was just adrenaline. Now we'll see two days later how his ankle is. But, I mean, you're, I think you're, you're spot on. I don't know if they can bounce back from that because I was here four days and those kids were just inundated with questions on Duke. And then they win that game, which is an incredible game emotionally. And now you have to come back 48 hours and get yourself up for, you know, obviously a really good Kansas team that's kind of walked through the tournament. Are you surprised at all that uh, North Carolina Duke actually lived up or exceeded the hype that that game had? Yeah. Um, I I was thinking, I wasn't there last year because of COVID, but I was thinking watching it, it had a little Gonzaga UCLA to it, to where, you know, it was one of the best games we've ever had. But they never live up to that kind of, that kind of hype like they never and that you know and, and they lived up to that hype and i'll ask adam this because you know I, I hope i hope the game's called tonight like villanova kansas was because i thought i thought the refs stepped in the way a little of carolina duke despite what an incredible game it was so i i'd like to know what he thinks because i i want it to be called, called by kansas villanova i want you know i don't think it's going to be 81 80 but i'd love it to happen i think they're combined like 20 something and two when they both score 80 I don't think that's going to happen in the national championship game because kids will be a little tight. But I just hope it's called like Villanova, Kansas. I hope they stay out of the way a little and just let them go because if they do, I think it'd be a really good game. 
you can do your own research on this one. Um, there were 12 officials named to the final four. So you have three on the court for each semifinal and for the final, and you have uh, one who's the alternate official for each of those games. Mm -hmm. uh, by Ken Palm ratings of those officials, the official who stepped in the most in that game and kind of screwed up the flow that that crew had was the lowest rated of all those officials. So I think you're probably going to get a game that's a little more representative of how it's been called, uh, you know, at other points in the tournament. Right. I hope so. I mean, I hope, I hope they'll know. I hope it's still Nova, Kansas, where I'm looking at it right now, eight, you know, 19 total fouls. I think at one point it was like four, three really late into the first half that there was flow to the game. You look at the clock, you're like, man, this is going really fast. And then it switched. <laughs> There's the Airline real did. answer. <laughs> which, Ed just which wants is... to meet deadline. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks for checking in on that. You're exactly right. I look up, I said, hey, let's get this thing going. I got to write this game instead of the game that was previously played. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, 19 and 18, you know, uh, what, 37 in the other one? I mean, you know, compared to like 18 or 19. I think that has a lot to do with how the game's looked at. And, you know, as, as much as they called it in Carolina Duke, it still turned out to be an incredible game. All right. Have you eaten anything good, or are you just going to tell us you've been eating the media meal for three straight days? Nah, some good paninis, a po' boy, um, some good food. Not not like, you know, hey, go out every night, because, uh, as you know, deadline, you have to write every night. Um, but uh, not, not bad, not bad. Good city. I still think, I think, you know, it, it's, 2027 is open, and I think Atlanta gets it, but I think Vegas gets it in 2028. And I think we, I, I've talked to people here, and it, that's far away, obviously, but there are people who've been to a ton of Final Fours who said Vegas would be the best Final Four ever. That it would, that, well, that because of the town and because of everything it has, the strip and everything, they said that would be the most anticipated attendant Final Four for media. What, uh, for media? Well, what, uh, what was on the Po' Boy? What kind of Po' Boy? Uh, some kind of shrimp, some kind of uh, some kind of um, uh, seafood, which was good. Okay, just just good. shrimp or multiple different kinds of seafood. No, it was mostly shrimp. It was good. Okay, go go find an alligator po' boy and let us know how it is. Oh no, is that something from Mississippi? Yeah, there's there's a restaurant in Mississippi that sells alligator po' boys. They're pretty good. Does your mom have the alligator at the house? I just go over to her house and she makes the alligator bubble. <laughs> she she does not have an alligator. Not yet. That'll <laughs> well, be not yet. that'll be on her list for self defense at some point. She'll build a moat yeah. with alligators around her property. All right. He's Ed Graney, live from New Orleans. Ed, thank you so much. We'll see you later in the week. Thanks, you guys. Talk to you soon. So there yeah. it is. Ed so I, here's here's what I think about that, Tyler. I think we should be eating alligators. I have no problem eating alligators because like, a cow never hurt anybody. A chicken never hurt anybody. A pig never hurt anybody. I understand when people feel some empathy toward those animals. Alligators want to F us up. Eat them when you can. <laughs> They're pretty good. I mean, there's nothing. You got to season them. It's nothing like special great meat or terrible. But, yeah, I'm on board to eat some alligator po' boy with you. I'll tell you if, you, if you ever go to Mississippi, go to Obie's. They got an alligator po' boy for you. They'll be they'll be ready. Coming up next, Adam Candy. We're gonna get his thoughts on everything refereeing over the weekend. You might have seen him at your local YMCA arguing with a U12 coach. Let's tee it up with Adam. 
Wait, it's a ref segment? Wouldn't it make more sense if it was a golf segment? Whatever. Let's tee it up with Adam Candy. Our resident referee, Adam Candy, is here, which means we've got referee questions for him. First off, because you brought up the Ken Palm ranks, as there's my dog barking. You brought up the Ken Palm ranks of the Final Four officials. Uh, how much do you think referees actually look at that and care about the Ken Palm ranks of themselves in college basketball? Oh. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Refereeing in terms of the way the uh, the actual employment works is like golf where everyone is an individual contractor, right? Like the, it's not like you work for one company. It, every person is an individual contractor. You work for as many conferences as will hire you. So, yeah. They definitely are watching to see how they're being ranked by some sort of independent service. I guarantee it. Uh, do you know the answer to this? The way I think the way Ken Palm's rankings work, though, is not anything about like calls that are right or wrong. It's simply based on like how big of games they get. Yeah, that is actually okay. Accurate information. Okay, so I I enjoy that. I enjoy that we get referee ranks and referees being mad or happy about something that has nothing to do with the actual percentage of calls they get right um i have a baseball question for you because tennessee the volunteers they're ranked number one in the country they had a home run taken away in their one of their games over the weekend due to an illegal bat now according to a story from cbs sports college baseball bats get examined before every series to make sure they meet the NCAA rules for what a bat can be. And there's a sticker that is placed on each bat that's verified by the umpires. And then when they play the game, the umpires can quickly see the sticker. Good to go. Apparently, the guy that hit the home run, he had a sticker from a previous series on his bat. So the umpires basically said, well, we didn't test this before the series. So this bat is illegal. That home run doesn't count. And he is out. Um what exactly would make a metal bat illegal? Like what what like I get that this was probably just a mix up where they didn't submit it or something like that, but like what would be illegal about a metal bat besides like something obvious that everybody would catch right away? I've been trying to think about how you could cork a metal bat. I don't know that that would be so easy, right? <laughs> like what do you do? You like melt it down and rebuild it? I, I don't understand how that would work. I don't know how you make a metal bat illegal. I just like, and again, it, it it probably wasn't an illegal bat. It was probably just something they didn't submit in time and what, or didn't give it to the umpires at the beginning of time. And the guy grabbed the wrong bat, whatever. It's just a mix up, but I still can't, the whole idea of we've got to verify every bat before the series. I, listen, maybe I shouldn't like hit out, hit out on it because hey, good for you. You're making sure everything's legal. I just couldn't figure out a way in which, yeah, that bat, that bat shouldn't be allowed to be used in this sport all right another story that came down on friday major league baseball umpires uh when they go and replay things guys out or safe at a base whatever it is fair foul if it's a home run or not this year they're going to actually start announcing those results uh presumably that'll be for a the crowd at the ballpark and for the television audience people watching at home will also be able to hear what the umpires say the nfl does this 90 percent of the time the nhl does this there's still the occasional time where the refs don't announce anything my main question is why did this take so long to implement why was this not implemented when replay review was implemented in baseball all right so you understand two things 
and you'll be able to understand why this took as long as it did. The first one is that as much time as we spend in our training sessions working on communication and being able to talk to players, talk to coaches, talk to the scorers table, etc., it's a very different thing when you have to do it to the camera, right? You have a situation where you're trying to say exactly the right thing, because if you say one word wrong in a situation like that, everyone is going to pick it out and they're going to seize on the fact that you said, you know, could instead of did or something along those lines. So I think that's part of the problem. The second part of the problem that you need to understand, and it was quoted in one of the articles I read, these guys are super nervous about it. Like these, really, these umpires are, are, they went through training in Florida and in Arizona. They practiced this. They practiced being able to announce not only what is being reviewed, but what is ultimately the decision out of that. And I'll, I'll say this much, Tyler, I think with baseball, it can be a little more complicated sometimes if you don't just want to say the play is under further review, uh, because the baseball rules get a little trickier than some other sports. But I know uh, there, I know officials who are final four level officials who don't want to have to do that push to talk thing on the microphone <laughs> where they go over and they look like they're being viewed through a ring security camera to be able to say, you know, the challenge was deemed successful or whatever the case might be. The, it, it is a real thing among officials to be nervous about that. Um, I look forward to a review in Tampa where they have to tell us that it hit the D ring or the O ring on the roof oh, and it counts God. as a home run. That'll be fun. But so is the best situation for umps or referees the way the NBA does it, where the ref just comes and like talks into a camera and the official scorer, and then the PA announcer actually makes the announcement to the crowd? Yes, I think that's perfect. I think the other way we could do this, and I think there are a lot of hockey fans who would like this. I think we should offer Wes McCauley a job in which he no longer has to referee, but he can announce the penalty decision or the replay decision for every sport anywhere. Just put him in a replay center somewhere and let him be the one to announce, okay, Vegas challenge, unsuccessful, move on. <laughs> and then he's got to immediately turn around and do a baseball game in Toronto yes, because that's his new job.